0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters
1: with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The American Federation of Government Employees says it will continue to fight the Department of Veterans Affairs in court after a Federal Service impasses panel decision went against the union. The panel's decision mostly confirmed President Trump's 2018 executive orders on the workforce and use of official time. Federal News Network reports the decision will cut official time at VA by more than 80 percent to about 176,000 hours a year. The vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff will serve the shortest term in that job in 13 years when he leaves in 2021. General John Hyten won't seek renomination to his job for a second two year term when the first term ends next November. USNI News reports the current commander of U.S. Fleet Forces Command, Admiral Chris Grady, is one candidate to replace Highton. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence has a new chief information officer. Matthew Cosma will join ODNI from the Defense Department. FedScoop reports Cosma served there as executive agent for the Pentagon's Unified Platform and Joint Cyber Command and Control. the new administration will likely bring some rollbacks to some of the existing federal employee executive orders the national academy of public administrations drafted its own executive order to modernize and reinvigorate the public service jeff neal is former chief human capital officer at the department of homeland security he's chairman at the national academy of public administration and writes the chief hro.com blog jeff welcome it is great to see you i read through this executive order there is nuance to it, of course, because of the team involved in putting it together. But is it was the starting point, at least, as simple as first repeal and then list all of the executive orders about the workforce that President Trump signed?
2: Uh, it was in, in a lot of respects. You know, this started with uh, a paper that Napa put together as part of its elections project. And one of our team members, uh, Alan Belotis, insisted that if we were going to to recommend an executive order that then we should go ahead and draft one and so we spent several months drafting this this proposed executive order and it does start with a couple of things one is elevating the director of opm to cabinet status which there is some precedent for doing and then the second step is eliminating five specific executive orders Uh, three that were focused on making it easier to fire people in some ways that we don't think we're particularly fair to employees, uh, and really going after collective bargaining in a way that, that we really thought was doing more damage than good, and then also getting rid of the Schedule F executive order that we've talked about before, and getting rid of the executive order that really prohibited diversity and inclusion training in federal agencies and by federal contractors.
1: I understand when answering this question you're speaking for yourself and not the group that authored this executive order uh, draft, and I want to come back to that in a moment. I mentioned in the headlines a moment ago the uh, decision about the Department of Veterans Affairs. AFGE says they're going to continue to fight that in court. What's the right role, though, for what collective bargaining and for what unions um, uh, should occupy in the federal government, since they can't negotiate pay and benefits?
2: Well, there are a lot of things that they can do. I'll give you a great example. When I was at the Defense Logistics Agency as the the head of HR there, we were going through a billion-dollar modernization program where we had to retrain more than 4,000 employees out of an agency of 25,000. The union was actually very helpful to us in identifying problems that were coming up as that training was being done, in uh, negotiating in good faith on how to do the training, how to roll it out, what kinds of things we ought to do to accommodate employees who were having trouble adapting to the new technology that we were using. And and the union, in, in that case, it was AFBE Council 169, was incredibly helpful. And it was because we had built a good, strong partnership with them. and And I think if agencies generally when an agency has a really toxic union relationship the agency has contributed to it you know it's not all the union it's not all management it's generally you get some people and put them in a room and they all start fighting and if they really try to build a productive relationship they can and that's what we did at DLA. so you don't have to negotiate pay and benefits you can negotiate a great many other things that can make things better for employees and you know, if you look at the, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey and the, what employees tell you about how much they trust or don't trust management, having a third party there, the, the union, that represents the employees and that can actually speak for them in an effective way can go a long way toward making those Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey results better. But what they have to do is they have to work on building a partnership so they work together and they talk with one another and share information and don't just get in rooms and fight.
1: I wanna go back to the executive order and it does not surprise me one bit that Alan Balutis said, we can't provide a problem without providing a solution. That sounds just like him. And so what is here that is new that proposes to build something the Biden administration could build for betterment of the human resources issues that you and I have talked about Jeff now going on 10 years, um, that the federal government's dealt with?
2: So there are a few things. First is is elevating the status of OPM. Second is getting OPM focused more on policy and less on selling services. Uh, OPM has uh, a very small percentage of its workforce dedicated to the policy and oversight mission that we really think is key to their, to their success and to the federal government's success. And then getting OPM to look at its approach to regulation writing in a much more expansive way. Uh, Generally, the the feeling among most of the Chico's is that if OPM has 100 units of flexibility they could give you, by the time you get through their regulation writing process, you've got 50 units of flexibility. And our proposal is if you got 100 units of flexibility, use 100 units of flexibility uh, in the regulatory process. So we want to see OPM be much more flexible in how it writes rules, um, make better use of, of Flexible hiring authorities, simplify the classification process. And there's a lot of authority within the executive branch to do that on its own. Uh, and, and then fix the assessments that they're doing for new hires, where right now they're doing these, these bogus questionnaires where half the applicants lie and they really don't tell you anything about how someone might perform on the job. So, so we think those things are really important. And then the, the idea of getting rid of those executive orders is to go back and start from you know, start fresh with something that is done in cooperation with the unions in cooperation with the veteran service organizations that that represent so many of our veterans and and we think if you do those things that we can start building on something that's done in a collaborative way that isn't just crammed down people's throats and that could really be the basis for the beginning at least of really significant civil service reform and no administration is going to succeed without those two million federal employees Uh, they're absolutely essential to anything that president-elect biden or any other president would ever do
1: jeff Neal, great insight as always thanks for coming on thanks for having me up next whatever happened to shared services straight ahead on government matters the business case for shared services now and in the future you're watching wjla 24 7 news Welcome back. The new Biden administration will have a chance to continue some initiatives the Trump administration drove and revive some things the Obama administration pushed. But there are a few examples of concepts both administrations advocated. Simone Zickman's chief technology officer at ATTAIN, former chief information officer at the Commerce Department. Simone, welcome back. It's great to see you. You were a huge advocate for shared services when you were the CIO at Commerce. What is the business case for continuing the concept of shared services into the biden administration
0: well i think the business case remains the same as it always had been there's uh, a lot of repetitive and redundant and overlapping investment in providing the same or equivalent types of services across multiple organizations that could in principle be consolidated to provide cost savings that either could be reinvested in other areas or to increase the critical mass of services to provide higher quality services better customer experience and so on so I think the business case is largely the same as it always had been.
1: I wonder if I'm hearing the dialogue then differently than I've heard it before. The term shared services is not used as much. Are we seeing it maybe that concept become overcome by events like the Centers of Excellence uh, at the General Services Administration working with a number of agencies and then the quality service management organizations, the QSMOs, that a number of agencies are undertaking? I think
0: both of those points are are quite valid. I think the conversation has changed in part because of the current administration's priorities and what they have elevated to the forefront of what they wanted agencies to be focusing on. at the same time, if you if you look at the Cusmos and the centers of excellence, they they are pockets of excellence rather than something that is necessarily going on at every single agency, whereas, services and therefore the need for shared services is is more widespread particularly given that many of the agencies are large federated agencies with multiple it organizations Uh, so i I would agree that the the conversation has changed that's not to say that the the needs has have necessarily changed from what they were before
1: so let's scale that then based on your experience at commerce you had i believe 12 bureaus inside the commerce department and you had, I imagine, pockets of excellence in some of those departments. How'd you propagate that throughout the entire agencies to the bureaus that didn't have the same levels of excellence in one uh, facet or another?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting you ask because that I think is is part of the challenge and might link back to your previous question of, of why the dialogue has uh, shifted a little bit. Implementing shared services effectively is is very hard, particularly when you do have multiple IT organizations, multiple CIOs, different budgets, different lines of authority. Um, I, I believe that FITARA was intended to help address some of those issues by consolidating power at the, the highest level CIOs. Um, but if you look at what they're measuring today on Fatara scorecards, they're not they're not measuring success with shared services. They're rather measuring, for example, whether the CIO is reporting to the agency head or deputy head which certainly is important, but that alone doesn't necessarily empower CIO to make changes. And in some cases, the CIOs might have power to make changes, but aren't flexing that power to do it as strongly as they might.
1: There's an ongoing conversation about what should be on the Fatara scorecard and, and adding to it and, versus the idea of leaving it static so that CIOs know for a more extended period of time what they're going to be graded on. What would that how would one grade the use of shared services on the Fatara scorecard? Is there nuance there or is it a black and white issue that's as simple as you're using shared services for this many things?
0: Well, as a as a former CIO who was in that chair and, and somebody who's continued to speak with peers and colleagues in the CIO community, I can absolutely appreciate the frustration with what what has appeared to be a moving target every time grades start to settle a little bit with our scorecard. The scorecard changes, they're assessing new things and people's grades drop. So um, so I think the issue perhaps is not as much one of what's on the scorecard, but, but maybe setting the agenda to drive these kinds of improvements. If you look, for example, at USDA, they really have made some wholesale changes in how they were organized to support IT. They changed titles, they changed roles, they consolidated organizations. And there's been a lot of change at USDA as a result of those things. While they may have contributed to the Fatara scorecard scores for USDA, they weren't driven by the scorecard. They were driven by leadership, both at the IT level and at the department level. So I think perhaps part of what we need for for the future to drive these types of agendas are people at the, the secretary, deputy secretary level or the agency head level and the CIO level were really willing to grab the reins and and make some perhaps difficult but important decisions around how IT is managed within the agencies.
1: About 30 seconds left, Simone. It comes down to what it always comes down to, doesn't it? It's leadership and culture.
0: Absolutely. It's it's never technology. Usually that's the, the more easy of the triad.
1: Simone Zickman, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for coming on. Thank
0: you, Francis. Good seeing you.
1: Up next, turbulence in the intelligence community. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's next for the budget and structure of the IC. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency says the 2020 presidential election was the most secure election in American history. That statement came just a couple of days before leadership shakeups at CISA. Ron Marx is president of ZPN National Security and Cyber Strategies, former CIA official and former intelligence advisor to two Senate majority leaders. Ron, welcome. It's good to see you. Um, the shakeup at CISA doesn't seem to be linked directly to the declaration that it is, that this election was the most secure in history, but there are a lot of people that think there's a connection. What connection could that possibly be?
3: Well, I, I, my first thought on the subject was, uh, now CISA has established its importance sufficiently that it's uh, made the White House angry and somebody got fired. Uh, I think, frankly, you know, first of all, it is a tribute to CISA that, that how well this all worked. This is a, this is a real crowning achievement for them that election commission, all the things attached were very difficult. We managed to identify, they managed to identify up front uh, from Iran, from Russia, other places, uh, different uh, you know inserts into our system here. Uh, they managed to uh, keep track of, of uh, potential problems with voting. I mean, it was really well done. So I, I'm sure that in the, uh, in the interregnum between the end of this administration and the next one, that someone described as the equivalent of an open city in war, uh, where the one set of troops leaves, the other one's starting to arrive, and, and everything is happening, uh, not necessarily good, uh, that you'll probably see some more pressures there. There are some people, obviously, in the White House who are unhappy uh, with Brian Ware and uh, Chris Krebs, although Chad Wolf seems to be discovering for, uh, for Chris Krebs for now, but I, I think Krebs should be congratulated. I mean, he really did a wonderful job and really established his, uh, as, a, as a player.
1: Quick sidebar, uh, this doesn't mean that the war is won, though. Every election will be a battle like this. Is that fair to say?
3: Yeah, I think so. I think going forward, what you've now seen is you've now seen the pattern, uh, which is that just by virtue of the availability of social media uh, and, frankly, the way it just lives in our lives now, uh, the the ability to put out false information, the ability to uh, persuade people uh, is, is an omnipresent part of our life, and it's as close as your iPhone, and it's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, concern uh, as we develop the system of voting, uh, as we use these computers, these different machines, you've heard some objections to some of the machines that are being used, uh, can they be played with, et cetera. Uh, none of that's going to go away, and I, I think you saw a pretty good shakedown cruise here that worked very well. Uh, but I think going forward, 22, 24, 26, et cetera, we're just going to have to watch out for it because that's just the nature of life in the third decade of the 21st century.
1: So the situation at CISA with the potential changes there even before the Biden administration comes in, same kind of discussions happening around the intelligence community. What's this mean for the broader national security, intelligence, cyber community, Ron, when names are changing and then they'll change again in a month and a half?
3: I I always found that uh, that one of the more interesting parts of of being at CIA and certainly where I was for a while and at at some executive level there, there there are two levels going on here. Uh, There is the executive suite level, um, whether it be Nebraska Avenue or whether it be 7th 4th CIA or or at at Liberty Crossing. each of the headquarters there, where, where everybody's playing the name game, who's in charge, what are we going to do, uh, you know, our names being shifted around here. And then there are the people, and, and uh, I think it was Jim Clapper referred to the dog barks and the caravan moves on. Uh, there are people who've sworn their allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. They come into their office every day. They get their job done, and they're going to do it no matter who's in charge. So if this were a period of a year, for instance, uh, I would look at you and say, OK, fine, we may have some people can't move ahead with policy or whatever else. I think, you know, now that we're less than 60 some odd days into this, people anticipated that there would be a shift over because of an election. It would have happened even if the Trump administration had won. Uh, second terms are notorious for shifting around personnel. Uh, so I, I think everybody who's actually needs to do what they're doing are continuing to do it no matter uh, which names are, are being tossed around?
1: Does it matter to the national security or cybersecurity of the United States that these folks would leave because somebody in the White House says get out, rather than the normal attrition that one would see at the end of an administration when one leaves to spend more time with one's family or take a private sector job?
3: Yeah, I, I think it does. I, it sends a terrible message. Uh, I think to to you know to the to the world. I think it sends a message that says. Uh, you know, look, here's uh, here's some, here, you know, we're looking at a transition of power of a country with 330 million people, 5,000 nuclear weapons, and the number one economy in the world. Uh, we cannot handle this like a third world country. In fact, it's a bit of an insult to third world countries. We have to do this in a way in which it's an orderly process. The intelligence community alone, if you can't think of it any other way, think of it as an $86 billion organization with several hundred thousand people in it. Homeland Security is a 40-some-odd billion-dollar organization uh, with 100-some-odd and some odd thousand people. And just from a structural and budgetary standpoint, you have to have order for these organizations. And you cannot make it look uh, as though you're just sort of rolling the ball down the road and walking away. It doesn't work that way, and especially in a day and age in which the threats are instantaneous. What are we going to do if there's an al-Qaeda attack, God forbid, or an ISIS attack, God forbid, what are we going to do if there's another bio breakout? What are we going I mean, you just sort of run down the list of horror shows, never mind the fact you have the usual list of suspects in Iran and North Korea waiting to do something, as they always do in these kinds of periods. So, you know, again, bad precedent. I think it's an unusual one. I don't know whether we will ever see this again. But nevertheless, uh, this, is the, this is just not good.
1: Ron Marks, thank you very much. Great to have you back.
3: Thank you, Francis. Delighted to be here. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune in to the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn.
1: In tonight's event spotlight, Gain 2020, the Government Marketing Conference, is going virtual this year. You'll learn how to reach your remote government prospects from the industry's brightest minds. Gain will also host training workshops and a lot more. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. The conference has started already. You can watch content online through Thursday. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24 7 News and Sunday mornings at ten thirty on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon.